The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Support for this show comes from 1440 Multiversity, a state-of-the-art learning destination in the California Redwoods near Santa Cruz. 1440 Multiversity offers weekend and five-day programs in mindfulness, leadership, well-being, and more. Learn more at 1440.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Janessa Gans Wilder. She's a former CIA officer who served in Iraq from 2003 to 2005. And she's the founder and CEO of the Euphrates Institute, an organization that builds peace and understanding regarding critical Middle Eastern issues. Her essay, The Very Best Way to Pray for Peace, appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Janessa Gans Wilder, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's going to be a great 20 minutes, though, because <laughs> the article in the magazine was fascinating, and I want to get into that. But your work with the Euphrates Institute is really inspiring. So I want to start with that. Uh, tell us, you know, how you started it, what it is, how you started it, what you're hoping to do with it. Well, I started it on the heels of that two years in Iraq, and I was just so struck coming home after being in the midst of the Middle East and all the issues of conflict and terrorism and energy. You know, it's a major source of the world's energy and the religious birthplaces. And yet coming home to the U.S. and finding such little understanding or engagement or awareness about that part of the world or feeling any kind of connection even to the war that we were in the midst of. And I thought something's not right here. We, as Americans, we need to feel that what's happening over there does directly impact our lives, which it does. And also to feel engaged in a way that we can be supportive of democratization efforts, you know, cultural expansion, empowering moderates versus extremists. What are ways that we can actually be positive influences in the region as everyday citizens, not just hoping that our government leaders do something about the issues there, but what can we as individuals do and be connected in inspiring ways? So that's why I started the Institute to give average everyday people uh, channels for engagement. And it's turned into this much wider circle where it's not just Americans involved. We have chapters all over the world now. I just got off a call and 
we had our chapter from Nigeria, Burundi, Cote d'Ivoire, Palestine, Jordan, you know, all over the world feeling that what happens in the Middle East does directly affect them. And they want to be involved learning from the peace building process and then practicing that in their own communities. So let me, let me ask you about, and I don't want to sound too jaded, but let me ask you about the average American's interest in involvement in the Middle East. If, if, if not for 9-11, I suspect that the average American couldn't find the Middle East on a map let alone want to get engaged in some meaningful way, you know, supporting moderate, supporting democracy. If, if we hadn't been attacked, I wonder if we would be involved at all. Uh, what, what's your sense of that? I mean, do people... Yeah, I, do, I agree. I, I don't think so. I think 9-11 was that wake-up call. And, and more and more now, whether it's issues of immigration or Islamophobia or, um, you know, terrorism at home or fossil fuels, our, you know, our religions. Now I think we are becoming more and more aware that these issues do affect us at home and are relevant to our everyday lives. And so some people feel so overwhelmed by that. They just want to tune it out. They don't want to hear or be engaged. It's just so dark and depressing and overwhelming. Other people see that as a wake-up call and go, oh my goodness, this is not just what is happening there is affecting me, but the issues stemming from that part of the world, those religions, that religious tension is affecting me here. I've got to do something about it. What does that look like for me? How can I get involved? I don't know anything. I don't know where to start. We're trying to provide people that channel and that outlet to get engaged and get engaged in a positive, constructive way. So I want to underline that last part, positive and constructive. I'm going to ask you for some specifics. Uh, I've read them on the website. I, I really know what you're doing, and, and it's just so interesting. I want you to share that. But I want to underline this notion of positive and constructive because mm. there's. it seems to me that, that a lot of us are just frightened, and we circle the wagons, and, uh, you know, it's just let's just send weapons, let's just bomb them into oblivion, right. and that'll be the only way I can keep myself safe. But you really are... Oh, I don't know, turning the tables. You're saying, let's take this energy that's been released by probably through our fear and turn it into something positive. I, am I on the right track? Yeah. Oh. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you recognize that fear lends itself to paralysis. So we just, we don't do anything. We feel petrified. We, we don't even know where to start. And then that, that paralysis just makes us feel even more overwhelmed and helpless and so the antidote to that sense of helplessness and fear is to get engaged. And more than just, you know, part of it is just learning something new about these issues. Maybe it's reading an article. But the best way, I think, to feel connected and to have this feel like this is something relevant to your life is to have a personal experience or a personal connection. So we really help people feel connected to this issue by going to visit a local mosque, let's say, you know, and meeting a Muslim for the first time or taking a trip to the region uh, for those who are even more adventurous <laughs> and experiencing it on the ground, you know, in the field or attending a, a lecture with, with a, a visionary from the Middle East who's, who's come on a speaking tour or, you know, something that makes it real and just beyond the headlines of despair. 
and and makes it personal for people. We had a, a, a super Tea Party activist, you know, here in the town where I live, join us for the first time to our visit to the local mosque. And he said, wow, I, I get now how this can change the world. This, this put a human face for me on Islam. And we talked about how for, for the Muslim community too, this was their first vi- visit to, for them from uh, the local community. And for it puts a human face for them on their community instead of a community that is antagonistic and and um, you know, hateful towards them that we were reaching out and welcoming them. And wouldn't you be more likely to, um, you know, not want an attack against your community? Let's say if you felt part of that community, if you felt welcomed by that community. So we just see it even in these small interactions, the the possibilities for greater peace and understanding and less violence in a community. So this is really very fascinating, very important. I was just in a community, small Middle Tennessee community yesterday, giving a lecture at a Presbyterian church. And the pastor came over and asked if I would be interested in helping him create an evening of conversation uh, with a rabbi, that would be me, and a minister, which would be him, and then uh, someone rep from the the Islamic community. He had a friend of mine who was a professor at the university, uh, as opposed to an imam. But they they had no Muslims or Jews in their town. They were only you know <laughs> Christians of various denominations, and so he was going to have to import us to the <laughs> town to have this dialogue. But what struck me as so exciting about this was that they actually wanted to meet. You know, people from, they wanted to meet Jews and Muslims. They yeah. wanted to talk to them. They wanted to, but not everyone is willing to do that. So you mentioned specifically a moment ago, someone from the Tea Party, the assumption being that you're a little surprised that anyone from the Tea right. Party would want to really, could really get this. What's the re, the resistance that you run into, if any, uh, from, from people who just, you know, I don't want to know them. I don't want to put a face on, on my enemy, on the other. Right. Well, and, and, um, there is a lot of resistance and sometimes then it's actually, you're expending too much effort in trying to force those people to come around. And, um, I know you mentioned this idea of the diffusion of innovations I talk about in the article, and there's a lot of power to this theory of how social change happens. And it tells us where our energy is going to be best spent. So with the people who are absolutely opposed to any kind of conversation or there's just no openness, you could just keep beating your head against the wall and they would never want to come to a mosque, let's say, or, um, or be part of that conversation. But what this theory tells us, and it's from Everett Rogers out of Stanford University, who's been studying this for decades, and he looked at everything from the adoption of the fax machine to hybrid corn in Iowa to technologies to the cell phone. You know, how do these things take, even peace movements, how do these new ideas take root and then take off so quickly? And he always found that they followed an S-curve and that it starts with a very small percentage of the population. The innovators are the first to recognize Um, a a new idea or a new gadget or the potential of a new vision or a new mindset and to articulate that. Then the early adopters are the first to 
recognize the potential and value of that idea and adopt it. And that's about 5% of the population. So once 5% of the population has accepted a new idea, it's considered embedded. And between 5 and 20% is the tipping point in all of these cases. And after which point, once it hits that tipping point, the change was unstoppable and reached every pop person in, in the population. You know, it reaches, the, it just skyrockets up and it reaches even those late adopters. So to me, it's sort of like, well, those people who are extremely resistant are going to have to come around eventually <laughs> to this idea once it reaches the tipping point. So it's better to work with people who are open to the idea where it resonates somewhere with them. They see the potential. Maybe they are not, you know, experienced in it, but they, they see the power of a new idea of a new vision. And for us, that idea is turning the other into a brother. How do you do that? Why is it important? Who is your other and how do you make them your brother? And so the more people that we have, even across the globe in, in uh, having an experience like this and having that transformation, then you reach more and more people and then the pool grows and the movement grows and then the tipping point is reached. So that's really where for us, we're spending our energies with reaching people who are receptive or there's an openness or a willingness to experience something new. So this, again, is a very important idea, this diffusion of innovations. I, I mean, it's been around from what, I, from what I read to prepare for the conversation. It's been around since the 19th century. Uh, but but the, the person that you quote, Everett Rogers, I think it was. Yes, um, yeah. So, so he picks it up in the 60s, 1962. Mm -hmm. So what, what's fascinating is so many times we do this interfaith work and, well, just like uh, the place I was at yesterday, um, at least half the people left. After my talk, I had I, I was giving away books uh, on, on interfaith looks on, on God, and half the people wouldn't take it. <laughs> uh, they just didn't. It was too scary just to take it. And, and I was sharing that with someone, and the response was, well, you see, you're just never going to reach these people, and it's, it's a lost cause. But what you're saying through this notion of diffusion of innovations is I don't have to reach those people. Mm -hmm. I only have to reach the 5% who will embed these new ideas in society and let the idea itself run the, its natural course. And it'll pick up the, um, you know, the early adopters and then uh, the people in between and eventually maybe, but it won't matter in the end what uh, Rogers calls the laggards, the, the last, mm -hmm. the people are really clinging to not, you know, to the old ideas, but they're, they're such a minority at that point. Now they seem to be so powerful mm -hmm. as, as just what you said to, to paralyze us. So anyone who's listening, who's thinking about, well, what can I do that will actually make a difference? You don't have to think even though, Janessa, you did, you don't really have to think globally. You can think locally and work on your your 5% in your community yeah. to make this shift. But you went, and, you know, maybe you started with the 5%. I'm, you can tell me in a sec. But really, the Euphrates Institute is global. I mean, you mentioned a couple of countries, but you have chapters all over the place. Tell us what, give us a sense of how broad your organization is and what the chapters do. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, 
a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's really remarkable and I didn't expect we would be here uh, just two years ago is when we expanded the chapters program beyond a beyond a very small liberal arts college in Illinois where I was teaching and it was my alma mater and we had a we were running a program for students there and then had this idea to well it, you know people would go on a trip or they'd be exposed to their ideas and they'd say well how can we do this in our community? And I said, well, unless you're a student here at Principia College, you can't, <laughs> or unless you come on a trip. And then we realized how to expand the opportunity to just be on the campus borders. And so just two years ago, um, we introduced the idea that anyone could become a chapter anywhere in the world. And now to have 25 chapters, uh, several in Europe, all over uh, the Middle East, in Africa, um, coast to coast in the U.S., India and Pakistan, we have two chapters each in those countries. And so it's just remarkable to me to see that people are, your everyday individuals are seeing that there are issues of conflict in their communities and seeking for way, for an outlet for how to address that. How do I be empowered and equipped to be a change maker and a peace builder in my own community. And I can learn from the amazing examples and experiences from the Middle East of overcoming conflict, of grassroots peace building, or let's say it's, um, for example, we just got off this call with our guy in Ghana and he said, well, the Muslim Christian um, divide and the tribal divides here are so great and we want to learn for how they're addressing that religious conflict elsewhere so we can we can heal it right here in our own community. And so there's just a lot of knowledge sharing, example sharing, and a sense of solidarity across the globe that we're all in this together. We're, we're a tiny group, and yet we span all these countries, and we're all trying to turn the other into a brother. What does that look like at home? And yet, how can we learn from examples of other people doing it in other parts of the world, and especially the Middle East, where it is sort of at its maximum, and it's they've been at it the longest, and it's the most severe and has the most global ramifications for what's going on there. But then we just see it tangibly and how we address it anywhere from Seattle to 
St. Louis to Stockholm, Sweden, um, you know, all in those local contexts. So it's just really amazing to see the, the global relationship and connectivity, but then the local application, which is so key to make it practical. You know, if I didn't know better, you know, I was just reading about you somewhere. So, oh, yes. Well, she's a, a American, a liberal. She's, you know, always oh, going to make the world better, blah, 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 blah. But you're CIA. <laughs> you know, that's that's a little that, that's some gravitas there. I mean, your central intelligence agency, you were in for two years in Iraq when you were there. Did did you see I mean, obviously, the Euphrates Institute didn't exist. But when you were there, did you see people longing for this kind of thing? And people who are on you know, Sunni and Shia? I mean, did you see um, these divisions, pe- people in each camp wanting to do something uh, to, to bridge the divides? I, that's a great question. I saw it after my eyes were opened to even an interest in this. I mean, my first year I was there as a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism analyst, and just solely focused on the enemy, on destroying the enemy, on knowing the enemy, on, um, you know, fighting this insurgency I I would never have been thinking along these lines or open to these lines. It's been a very unlikely path for me in my life. But I just hit a point where that fighting against the problem became so unfulfilling and so draining that I just couldn't do it anymore. It just, you know, the metaphor I use is it, it was like catching drops of water from a leaky faucet and the amount of energy that we were expending and the resources and soldiers' lives, you know, seeing them coming back wounded from the front lines and all of this energy at fighting the problem and it was getting us nowhere. I just couldn't live like that anymore. And after those two weeks in Fallujah where that was the closest to me that I'd been to front lines and having to run out to the sandbags and just in the midst of the war environment, I just thought that, all that represents is darkness and despair and hopelessness and and no forward movement. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And so after having a very peaceful and beautiful experience by the Euphrates River and realizing the power of that, of life over death and making that choice, then I became opened up to a whole other world of gosh, I could partner with the Rockies and listen to them instead of interrogate them and and want to take them off the list and, you know, our, our high value target list. And it was just all of a sudden I did become aware of people involved in reconciliation and human rights and democracy building and activism and civil society. And it was a whole new world for me that felt so progressive and, and positive and that we were building something instead of just destroying something. So, so I certainly us- saw that. Tell us a little bit about the, we only have two minutes left, but your experience uh, by the Euphrates and and, why you call it the Euphrates Institute. You just mentioned it, but elaborate a little bit about what that was and um, we'll we'll use that to bring this conversation to a close. Great. Well, it's one of those moments that you'll never forget. (laughs) You know, truly for me, it was a spiritual experience and I you know, fresh from Fallujah and the, and the conflict there. And I was staying a little bit down, um, 
a few miles away in the town called Ramadi, which was also a hotbed of insurgent activity, and but staying on the special forces base there, right along the Euphrates River. And I'd gone for a run one evening and went up on the roof to cool down and just take in the quiet. And that was the first thing I noticed was the stillness. I couldn't hear any bombs going off. I, I mean, the, the deafening noise of war is just incredible and so overwhelming. And all it was was this quiet, still, beautiful, peaceful scene in front of me of this Euphrates River floating down and the weeds swaying and just this such moment of beauty and peace and life in contrast to what I just experienced. And what hit me was that that river would was flowing right in the midst of Fallujah where that war had been going on and that the two things had been happening in the same space. And the thought that came to me was, which one will you choose? They're happening in the same space at the same time, but I'd been completely unaware of this beautiful, peaceful, life-giving force of the river in the midst of the war zone. And in that moment, that's all I was taking in. And I just felt so at peace that I had forgotten completely about the war and so it was obvious to me that no matter how many bombs went off, how dire that conflict was, it couldn't stop the flow of that river and the power of that river flowing right in the midst of that. And that all I had to do was open my eyes to see it and embrace it. And so that was the moment that I made a change. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I was choosing, but I said out loud, I choose the river and went back and told my boss I didn't want to do counterinsurgency anymore. I wanted to be part of building something. I wanted to be doing something positive. And that changed the whole trajectory of my life. So this really was, though you didn't use the terminology, a mystical or spiritual experience for you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, very powerful. Right in the midst of war, you yeah. have this epiphany that that peace is possible. And, mm -hmm. and and one that's embodied in the in the Euphrates. Very, very strong experience, obviously, sending you back to the United States to do this amazing work that people are, you know, with which people are resonating. It's it's just really very interesting. Just one quick question before I let you go. So people are listening. Um if they want to start a chapter or find a chapter, they can go on your website, euphrates.org. Mm-hmm. But let's say nah, I'm a little, that's, that's too much right now. It's, I, I'm not sure I want to go that far. What else could they do to begin to make the shift in their own lives? Well, what they can do to start to connect with us is we're constantly, you know, highlighting stories and inspiration and examples. And so they can read our blog, they can sign up for our newsletters, they can watch our videos. And we, we are trying to be... Um, that channel for for other ways uh, to hear these stories, which our media is not covering. You know, we don't hear any of the the positive, good examples of of visionaries and just amazing, amazing examples of heroic courage and transformation that then can inspire us to make changes in our own lives and our in our own communities. So, I encourage anyone to explore our resources on the website to sign up for the newsletters, to reach out to us, to just begin that conversation. And then maybe down the road um, to join a chapter or to start one. And what is the, is a great path to take. Do you ever suggest to people that they just uh, 
drop in on a local mosque, church, or synagogue? I I have found that people are usually intimidated mm. to do that unless they're in a group or it's organized or they know what the reaction or they have some experience with that. It's been really um, tough for people to do that. But we've had, for those who are more reluctant, we've had people host gatherings in their home and then invite the imam of a local mosque there. So it's even a safer environment for them to begin to be exposed to these ideas or again, to go in a group. So just ways that we can make people feel comfortable and ease that transition. But of, of course, I, you know, I don't think any mosque would turn someone away, but if they're not comfortable, there's other ways to ease into it. Well, anyone who's listening who has a desire to maybe drop in on a religion other than their own, let me just suggest a book. It's called Perfect Stranger. Perfect mm. Stranger. And it's basically a guideline if you're, if you're not a Muslim and you go to a mosque, this is what you can expect, how you ought to dress, what's <laughs> going to happen. If you're not a Jewish and you've never been to a synagogue, the same thing. If you're not Christian, you've never been to a church, same thing. It sort of tells you how not to make a fool of yourself if you go to visit these other places. Uh, very perfect, important. Perfect stranger. Your work is very important and very impressive. And thank you very much for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you, Remy. What a treat to have this conversation and talk about these ideas. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Our guest today was Janessa Jans Wilder, a former CIA officer and founder and CEO of the Euphrates Institute. Her essay, The Very Best Way to Pray for Peace, appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Janessa's work at www.euphrates.org. Support for this show comes from 1440 Multiversity, a state-of-the-art learning destination in the California Redwoods near Santa Cruz. 1440 offers weekend and five-day programs in mindfulness, leadership, well-being, and more. Learn more about 1440 Multiversity at 1440.org. As a side note, I will be at 1440 on August 18th through the 20th leading a workshop on my book, The Sacred Art of Loving-Kindness. I hope you can join me there. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.